Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students of the art of therapy who are looking for the far side of complexity. Today I have a great interview that I'm so excited to share with all of you. But before we get into that, a quick, a quick announcement. This interview was made under the old name of Behind the Mirror. But make no mistake, this is the new project. And so you'll hear some of the old language, but the information is just as valuable and useful for us as we look for the far side of complexity. All right. Hope you guys enjoy. Today I have a wonderful researcher. His name is Alan Berkowitz, who I first got in um, touch with his work when I was doing my own dissertation. Um, he's done a lot of research on social norms and bystander effects, uh, really fascinating stuff. So, Alan, as we get into it, can you give us a brief introduction to yourself and um, how you got into the field of psychology? Sure, thank you. Welcome, everybody. Um, I have a PhD in psychology. Uh, my goal for myself was always to do one-on-one -on -one therapy, which I did as a counseling center psychologist in a small college, but I quickly got into cultural and environmental change initiatives, focusing on social justice as well as health risk behaviors such as alcohol and sexual assault. And my work now more focuses on those larger issues and to help institutions design programs that um, reduce health risks and address social issues. I would also add that for me personally, spirituality has always been a very, very important part of who I am and how I think of the world. And so it's a great opportunity that I'm being provided here to be able to be out of the closet in that regard and talk about the spiritual dimension of, of how I understand my work as well as the, um, the practical and more public aspects. Wow. How did you make that trend? Well, before I get to that question, what made you want to become a counselor? Sure. Well, life intervenes in our ego's plans. So I always wanted to be a medical doctor, mainly because I was drawn to the healing professions. And the truth is that I would not have made a good medical doctor because I'm not a good science person. So I didn't get into medical school. Um, during that time, I was doing a lot of introspection and study, and I realized that what I really had been looking for all along was a career in, in the psychological field. So I think it's one of those things where your life, or we could say a higher power, um, intervenes and directs us in a way that was not what we had planned, and then it's a it's up to us to accept the crisis and to follow the, the guidance that's being provided through circumstances. So um, as a result of not getting into medical school, I ended up getting a master's in counseling and a PhD in psychology, and I'm much better off, and I think the world is much better off as well, having <laughs> me in this career. And I've had other, other, um, other things like that in my life, which were fortuitous but did not seem at the time because they put me where I needed to be and not where I thought I wanted to be. Yeah, that's a pretty common thing. Um, yes. The things that we, the things that end up being blessings don't always feel like blessings at the time. 
Yes, so that's something for all of us to figure out how to follow, but also to figure out how to help other people follow their blessings or their inner guidance, even when it seems, um, let's say it seems to not be what they want or what we want. Yeah. Uh, what did you do your, uh, your, your dissertation in? So I was at um, Cornell University, which is a land-grant college. And those of you who know land-grant colleges are meant to serve the agricultural community. So I was able to get involved in a grant which paid my way through graduate school. We were studying stress in farm families. And the nice thing about that was I traveled all around New York State meeting with family members and interviewing them, doing qualitative interviews. And, and, and so that was very personally meaningful to visit with families and see their situations. And then my PhD was more quantitative, but on the same subject of, of stress in farm families. So it's a little different from what I ended up doing. Yeah, it is. Um, but also it seems kind of related in a sense. I mean, you're, you're looking at groups more than individuals. Right. I was, I was led to focus more on groups and individuals, even though I imagined myself working only with individuals. Yeah. What kind of stuff did you find when you were doing that, that research? Um, with farm families, um, that's actually interesting because I was looking at the stress experienced by the wife. And um, we know that farm families are very, let's say, tight units. And what was interesting is we found the, the wife's level of stress was related to whether or not she felt supported by her husband. So it didn't actually um, correlate with, let's say, the amount of external stress that you could measure but it correlated with feeling part of a team and feeling supported. And for these women, it didn't necessarily require that they take an overt role as a co-leader of the business. Some of them were more silent and some of them were more out front. But what was important was that they felt supported and engaged by their husbands. And I think that also tells us something about what healthy families are and how they operate which it isn't necessarily the external labeling by what others would see that determines our gratification, but the more intimate relationships with the people we're working with on an ongoing basis. Wow. As you were talking about that, I got a, a little bit emotional, just that image of, because, <laughs> you know, farm, farm family. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> farm, farm families really do work hard, right? Um, and they work hard in a hard context that I think often goes overlooked. And so just the image of, you know, this woman having, feeling like I can handle this as long as I know that I have support of my partner. That's a beautiful image. Yes, that's a beautiful image. And um, let's say it's a lesson for all of us. And some of us may want the external recognition or want to be seen in the leadership role, and others might not feel that's important. There are other times when morally and ethically we need to be acknowledged for our leadership role, but in this case, in the case of the more intimate family dynamics, it's, it's exactly what you just said, which is feeling supported and um, having input, whether or not other people know that. So how did you go from counseling into more on, on the research side? 
Right. So, first of all, I was always very passionate about social justice issues and um, grew up in a situation where I had the opportunity to see injustice. I grew up in a very wealthy community and my family was not wealthy. So even though we were not poor, I, I consider myself, I use the term, relatively deprived. And so that put me in touch with the other students who also were, let's say, marginal in my high school. I also very, I grew up in the Jewish faith and I always felt very alienated from, let's say, formal institutional religion. I was looking for a deeper sense of the sacred that I didn't find in institutional worship where people seem to be concerned more with the surface. So I went into college with these two impulses that at the time were not um, blended or integrated and um, started out majoring in sociology, but eventually was led, as I said, to be pre-med, and then through not getting into medical school was led into counseling. And little by little, I also saw a way to incorporate my spiritual ideas and beliefs into what I was doing without overtly doing so, except when explicitly appropriate, such as now, right, such as now. And I think that's a metaphor for us as therapists, because um, using the image of Christ as the shepherd, which I've been thinking about in preparation for this interview, as therapists, we're shepherds of souls, and we're guiding them to find their own inner truth. And through a link with the divinity, whether conscious, explicit, and acknowledged or not acknowledged, we're, we're helping them find their own inner guidance to make the right choices. And we may need to be very reserved about our own beliefs and not bring them in. We may be able to talk about spirituality in general, or in some cases we may be able to share more personally about our personal um, religious perspective if it's appropriate for the client. So. I think there's a parallel there in what I was talking about with myself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like a lot of the push for you was that desire for, um, like, to confront societal problems on as wide a level as you possibly could. Yes, I would say um, there, I haven't. I have an innate sense of discomfort with injustice <laughs> like when i go to places where there's huge income inequality where you see in certain parts of the world where i travel but we also have this in the u.s where you see very wealthy living side by side with extremely poor i really have a hard time let's say enjoying the nice things about the place i'm visiting so and I grew up in the 60s at a time of a lot of tumult and, and you know, revolutionary energy. I saw a lot of hypocrisy in the people that were ostensibly trying to change the world and not practicing always what they preached, which, of course, we see throughout human existence. <laughs> so I guess it really spurred me also to transform myself, to, And that's, I think, another spiritual a spiritual metaphor is that we're vehicles or vessels of something greater than ourselves. But in order to let that that energy or whatever we want to call it flow through, we could call it love or compassion, um, 
we have to we have to let go of ourselves and we also have to develop ourselves so i think that's part of our task as therapists or healers is to not not neglect our personal transformation and growth and not to use our position as being able to help others as a excuse or cover to deny our own imperfections and where we need to address them. Wow. Yeah, I think that that's so true. And I'm not sure if it's talked about a lot, but yeah, I mean, because it sounds like part of what you're saying is we as therapists need to be making sure that we're doing our own work. Always. So when I grew up in the 60s, there was this very popular phrase, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And that always seemed to me too dualistic to me. And I heard someone else rephrase it, and I can't give them credit because I don't know where it came from. But they said, you can't be part of the solution until you understand how you are part of the problem. So whatever you think the solution is, for me to help another human being who's suffering or for me to to help help another person with a problem or for me to help to bring the kingdom of God to earth, however we understand that. I have to purify myself and I have to transform myself and I have to be open to that, which means I have to be open to the people who tell me things I don't like. <laughs> and actually I'll share one more anecdote, which is when I was in graduate school, I read a book by a Jungian therapist called Shadow, Shadow in the Helping Profession. And it talks about the dark side of the therapist and how in the therapist undeveloped unconscious side um, can interfere with the therapy or cause them to abuse their power. And that book scared me so much, I almost like turned away from this career. But in the end, it created an awareness of our, um, how our humanness can get in the way of what we're trying to do. Yeah. You, um, you, you remind me of a story I read a few months ago about the late 1800s. You'd have physicians who were delivering babies into the world. And babies were dying at high, high, high rates. And they didn't know why. And so they, they decided to go to the midwives next door and they just watched the midwives. And the fundamental difference between the midwives and the doctors was that the, doc, the, the midwives weren't losing babies. So they looked a little closer and, and they realized that after the midwives, um, when the midwives get ready, they wash their hands. <laughs> and afterwards, they like attend to the baby, whereas the doctors, the physicians, would not wash their hands, and they go straight to working on cadavers. They go back to delivering babies, and they kill the baby, and they, and they <laughs> infect the babies, right? And it's this idea of like having clean hands, so that when you help, you help more than you hurt. <laughs> so also, that's a very that's a very good symbolic metaphor, right? That clean hands are not only hands. And also when we talk about spirituality, it's not enough for us to have good intentions and to pray for someone or to care for them or to feel compassion for them. Very often our, our actions can be misguided or misinformed and not produce the result we want. And 
you know, we don't have to go through the history of Christianity or other religions, but we can certainly acknowledge that there's been some very dark things done in the name of religion, and that as therapists and healers who identify ourselves strongly with the religious orientation, that's also a danger that our beliefs will lead to an arrogance or a blindness that will allow us to have symbolically dirty hands, you know, using the metaphor you just provided. So where did the social norm research come in for you? So there's another. So first of all, I want to make a distinction, which is sometimes people in the public health field try and change negative norms. And there's another newer approach that I'm co-founder of, which we also call the social norms approach. I think it's better to call it the positive norms approach, where we identify underestimated healthy norms in the community. So, for instance, most high school students don't drink alcohol, but most high school students think that most high school students drink alcohol. And when you have that, we call misperception, that false belief that other people do a lot of something, then you feel pressure to do it yourself and you engage in it sooner. So this is another one of those fortuitous things in my life where I was a young psychologist at a college. My predecessor had done a survey of alcohol and they, I inherited that survey when they left, and it sat, hundreds of surveys sat in my office for a year or so, and finally a colleague and I said, let's look at these surveys, and it turned out that one of the questions that the surveyor had asked was, how much do you drink, how much alcohol do you typically have, let's say, in a week? How much alcohol do you think most students at this college typically have in a week? And when we looked at that misperception, we saw that students overestimated the amount of drinking that other students were doing. And then we saw that that predicted people's own drinking. So the two were correlated. And now we know from extensive research all over the world that many, many human problems, the negative is overestimated and the, and the positive is underestimated, including in the United States spirituality and religious practices. So I think it's also another lesson for us who, let's say, take a more humanistic or spiritual point of view because we go through life, we go through life underestimating the goodness of human beings and we overestimate the negative. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like someone makes a, a prejudicial remark and it bothers me, but I don't think it bothers other people so I don't say anything. When in fact, if it was a cartoon, I would see the little blurb <laughs> above their head saying that I don't really like that remark, but no one else seems to mind. Yeah. And when you have the majority believing, when you have the majority being upset and believing that the majority is not upset, you have what we call a silent majority. Yeah, yeah. Um... Can you talk a little bit more about how social norms work? I don't think most sure. students have an understanding of that. Sure. So, the, and, and we could use two examples. One example is in when people engage in unhealthy behaviors. Another example could be when people see abuses, like let's say there's abuses within a church or community. So let's start with alcohol because that's easier. So in the United States, um, 
one of the characteristics of the society is that people are given the opportunity to drink alcohol. Um, and whether or not you're underage, it's, it's readily available and it's, it's easy thing to do. And it's promoted by the media and advertising, et cetera. And it's made to seem by the, the collective culture as a, a good thing or is associated with a good life. So let's say there's a cultural pressure or gradient um, encouraging people to engage in the behavior, but then the most immediate influence on someone or their peer group or their friends or the people they care about. So when we do these surveys, we find that in high school, most kids don't drink but most kids think that most kids drink alcohol. So there's a perception which is not true. So we call it a misperception. Same with sexual activity. Most kids think that other kids are sexually active with, with numerous people. And in an older age, let's say in college, when maybe a majority do drink occasionally drink alcohol or are have had a sexual experience, most people overestimate the amount that people drink or the, the consequences of their drinking, and most people overestimate the number of sexual partners and the frequency of sexual activity that people have. So for example, in most universities, around a third of co college students are celibate or abstinent by choice but those students feel that they're in a very, very, very small minority, you know, unless they go to a religiously identified institution where that's the norm. So just to finish the, the line of reasoning, when you think that other people do something more than you really do, and they're your friends, you feel pressure to engage in the behavior. So in high school, kids may put soda in a beer can in order to look like they're drinking, or they may drink when they weren't planning to or didn't want to, or they may drink more than they were planning to. And usually you have one or two ringleaders who are like egging people on. And one of the things that gives the ringleader more social power or influence is the belief that other people are sharing the behavior. So. The misperception causes people to act in ways that they didn't want. If you take a spiritual point of view, you could say um, it causes people to act in ways that goes against their values or they don't listen to their heart or that causes them to, to not be true to themselves. And the flip side of the coin is that healthy behavior is underestimated so that when people see a, con a situation that concerns them and they want to do something, then they are less likely to do it. Now we could just finally add as an aside that there are some very evolved people. We could look at the lives of the saints or the religious, the great religious figures in different religious traditions. And we could see that there are some people that do the right thing no matter what, no matter what the consequences. They're not influenced by these social pressures, but the most of us who are less evolved or more in a social milieu, we are influenced by social 
things, which isn't necessarily bad. But when we have incorrect information about the social reality of other people, then that influences us to not be true to ourselves. And um, once you have an awareness of this, you start seeing it everywhere. You start seeing it in yourself where you say, oh, most blah, blah, blah. And then you realize that's not true. And it's also a tool to talk to our patients or clients because they may think that they're the only one who is um, sexually abstinent or who is a virgin or who doesn't drink or whatever. And they might not perceive the other people like them who are hidden from their eyes because the, the extreme behavior is more visible. Yeah. And, and for example, People don't brag about not having sexual activity, right? <laughs> if someone meets someone and they're very attracted to them and they decide they're not ready to be intimate either until they get married or until they get to know each other better, they don't go back and brag and say, I met this person and we decided not to have sex and it was great. But the person who brags <laughs> about the sexual activity is seen to be representing the majority. So it's a very interesting social phenomenon and it's been documented for many, many things. It's been documented for ecological behavior, for religious behavior, for social justice behavior, for alcohol, cigarettes, seatbelt use. You can almost name it that there's an innate human predisposition to see more of the negative that is really there and to see less of the positive. Even for us folks who think we're... <laughs> We're trying to connect to the more positive aspect of ourselves and others. Yeah, I remember when I first learned about this, it just blew me away. And then it made, um, I think it was probably, it may have been the most um, fun part of the research for my dissertation when I stumbled onto your, your work. Um, the research itself wasn't, I mean, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like um, over the moon, but the learning about social norms was just like, what? Like it just, it was one of those light bulb moments. Why, why is it that social norms, and it seems to be, if I'm understanding the, 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 the literature correctly, that it has to do more with, like a, with, your, with your peer group. Why is why is that such an influential thing instead of some 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 other facet of what it means to be human? Right. So first of all, there are many influences all at the same time. So we know there's genetic influences. We know, for instance, there's genetic influences on alcoholism. Some people are at risk. We know there's family influences. We know that there's personality influences. We know that religiosity is an influence and a protective behavior. So we're not saying that peer influences and norms are the only influence, but in a certain way, they're the most influential because they guide our everyday behavior. And especially as we get older and move out of the family context, the norms of our friends, or we should say the perceived norms of our friends take on more power, more influence. And it's also because we want to be accepted, we want to be liked, we want to fit in. You know, if you think of the life of Christ, um, who, who actually grew up in a Jewish context, which is often neglected, that he, he was willing to 
deviate from the norms of the religious context of his time and challenge them because they were not true to what they were meant to be. But most of us don't have, let's say, the moral courage or the inner strength to do that or even to risk our lives for something we believe in. And so most of us are more motivated by human relations, which isn't bad. Human relations can be beautiful, transformative, and wonderful. But when we are motivated by human relations and we have misinformation about the people we're in relationship with, we make, let's say, misinformed decisions. Yeah. It sounds like that, that drive for human relations is just so, so powerful. And it's not necessarily bad, yeah. right? I mean, community can be very transformative and deepening. But when the community, let's say, becomes afraid to have integrity and be honest, and when people live in a state of misinformation about other people, then it, then it can become negative. And personally, I think if you look at any, I'll just pick on religious organizations, but it's not limited. If you look at any religious or other organization where there have been abusive behavior, you could find that people were concerned and noticed it and didn't do anything because they thought other people didn't think it was a problem. Yeah. So that's a bystander piece that is also part of the discussion is the misperceived norms inhibit people from taking action yeah you were um you were kind enough to send me your book which was really interesting and the biggest thing i took away from the book was the need to say something and not necessarily to address the person who is doing whatever but to make it clear what the norms are Right, or or to even distract the person if you can't make it clear what the norm is. Right, right. And so, like, you know, I may not convince. I mean, I I remember having very civil conversations when I worked at my last job with people who were um, supporting things that I felt like were oppressive. And did I change their mind? Probably not. But did I also... I'll let everybody else, he was, he was, you know, sitting at the lunch table, know that if you feel this way, you're, you're not alone, right? That, 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 that this voice and this side of things doesn't go um, unacknowledged. Yes. And so in that way, I'm upholding the, um, the true perception of what the actual norm is. And then you're also doing two things at the same time you're correcting the misperception of that's called the prejudicial person that everyone agrees with them. And you're opening the door for other people who agree with you to step in and yeah. say, yeah, I agree with Jordan or no, let's talk about something else or whatever. And, and now that you say that probably also those are people who are on the fence. Yes. Yeah. Because, Remember, let's remember, from a spiritual point of view, which we can't always talk about, there's a soul or a conscience which knows what is true. And even if you read like the st stories of these um, 
evil or prejudiced people who were rehabilitated and who saw that they were that their ideology was wrong the reason they can make that change is because something in them knows that what they're doing is wrong so we could call that you know we can call it conscience and then everyone could go along with it we don't have to call it soul or spirit but because there is that true truth within us um speaking it allows other people to recognize it in some cases not in all cases but in some cases in some cases and i think that what your work kind of highlights is probably in more cases than you realize that's the point of the misperception right yeah. and when you're the when you're the target of prejudice you might not realize that other people think it's wrong but they don't say anything and when you want to speak up you might not realize that other people agree with you and that's why sometimes when you're not sure about taking action the best step is to speak to the other bystanders speak to the other people who are concerned and find out if they don't like the remark or they don't like the joke or they don't appreciate what someone is just saying or doing yeah is there is there any part of this especially when we're trying to influence um society for the better right i think that's in some ways what's um true evangelism is is we're, we're trying to spread love and goodness to all people so that we are all better um and so when we're trying to do that when we're trying to spread that right is there is there any how much do different roles come into play right it's because certain people are going to be in positions of power certain people are going to be bystanders certain people are going to be um maybe might have more of a voice to certain people in power, right? So how, Absolutely. How, how do these certain roles sort of play into this? Right. So first, let's step back a second, because I want to clarify another point about, about what you're calling the evangelism or bringing the good into the world. Let's say on a one to 10 scale, you and I are very uncomfortable with any remark over four, whatever it is. On a front of one to ten scale, if it get, hits four, you and I don't like it, and we want to say something. And someone else is only uncomfortable with the remark when it gets to eight. We might feel that we need to convince them that four, five, six, and seven are wrong. But if when they hear the remark that is at the level of eight, they don't do anything. They feel uncomfortable and they don't do anything. They feel guilty that they didn't do something. They remember that I should have done something and I didn't. Our job is to help them say something about the eight remarks, the level eight remarks. Our job is to help them act on their discomfort. And when we do that, we open the door inside of themselves to noticing that seven really isn't okay and six really isn't okay. But our job, especially as therapists, isn't to convince people what's right and wrong. It's to help them be true to themselves, even if they're being true to themselves is not going as far as we would want ourselves to go. So that's the first point. Okay, the second point. What? That's, I said I have to slow you down because that <laughs> sounds so humane. <laughs> really? 
<laughs> well, it is, if we're not going to be humane. <laughs> yeah, well, then what, then what are we doing? Um, because I've worked with, I mean, I worked with people in my last job who were, who were very, very kind to me and were on the complete opposite end of the political spectrum, right? Um, in a way that if I didn't know them and hadn't worked with them and if my family showed up, I'm not sure we would have been friends, right? Like they, they, I wouldn't, my family wouldn't have wanted to talk to them um, <laughs> because it would have been, it would have been, they would have felt like it was, it was dangerous. And so one of the questions that always comes up for me and I think for people who are wanting to change the world for the good is, you know, how do you start? Where do you, and you're, right, well, you, that's so, such a simple way to say, okay, <laughs> start where they are. It's very deep, but if if you use the word evangelizing, which you which you use, which we wouldn't normally use in a secular conversation, we're trying to connect with the humanness of other people because everyone has divinity within them, yeah. and we're not judging them; we're treating them with kindness and love. So, even if we think they don't deserve it, even if we agree to disagree, if we treat them with kindness. In love, then we will create cognitive dissonance in themselves because there's the part of them that is divine or that is a divine spark. And they're already not acting in alignment with that if they're prejudiced or hateful or whatever. So if we treat them with love, which might require a lot of transformation of ourselves, and it doesn't mean we enable them or condone them, but we treat them with compassion then they feel dissonant in themselves and we initiate a process where they have the possibility of changing if they are really wrong. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) When we get to your next question, that was a complicated question. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so true. I mean, I know for people who study, so the second most influential part of my uh, of my dissertation was learning about motivational interviewing, which is kind of based on a similar idea of very much you want very much. a person to explore their ambivalence. Once you have their their ambivalence in the room, then they can begin to resolve that in a way that helps them as a whole. Right. Right. And that's a similar so, idea with this cognitive dissonance. Yes. So what we're doing, which I never thought of before, that's why it's so great to talk, is we're talking about motivational and interviewing and ambivalence from a spiritual point of view that not only am I ambivalent because of my drinking or my smoking because I know it's not healthy for me which let's call that a a psychological ambivalence but at a deeper spiritual level I'm ambivalent because I'm not a living living according to who and what I really am so as therapists we can also help people get in touch with their own ambivalence, but it's not our job to tell them what they should believe or how they should resolve it, even if we think we know better. (laughs) And as soon as we think we know better, we're in trouble, (laughs) right? Wow, Have have you done much research on changing beliefs? I haven't done, well, the social norms research is about, well, actually, that's an interesting point because the social norms research 
is about giving people permission to change their behavior. And very often people don't need to change their beliefs in order to change their behavior. They just need to find a way to express the positive beliefs that they already have. And I think when people do that, the other beliefs follow suit gradually. So it's a process. But it's easier going back to the, you know, you and I are upset about a remark over four. It's easier to get someone to express the discomfort they already have about the remark that is six, seven, or eight than to try and convince them they should be upset about four. And it might even be a waste of time. We, what we need to do is look look for the place in someone's life where they already have ambivalence about their behavior and, and help them clear that up rather than trying to change them. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I knew this would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to go to your next question, which is about the, the differentials? Yeah. So nowadays people are calling that intersectionality, which is means that people have multiple identities at the same time. They have a racial identity, a cultural identity, a gender identity, a religious identity. They have more or less power in a particular situation. They have a position at work or in their community. So when you want to intervene as a bystander and do something when you see something, it's easier said than done because all of those um, identities come into play in, in terms of what the situation allows you to do. So if someone is physically much bigger and stronger than you, you're probably not going to intervene assertively or confrontively, or if it's your boss. And that's where I try and teach people different intervention skills, including indirect intervention, where you just change the subject, or someone makes a negative comment about a particular group of people, and I say, that's interesting. I just met someone, and I, and I share a positive experience of the people from that group. So I'm countering their information, but I'm not overtly disagreeing with them, or even once I was in a supermarket and there was a man being very abusive towards his wife and it really scared me, the degree of his his hostility and I didn't know what to do and they were standing by the watermelons. <laughs> so finally I decided to pr pretend I was innocent and dumb and go over and say like, I'm sorry to bother you but how do you know if a watermelon is ripe? Like, could you let me know how to choose a ripe watermelon? And then I kind of got a chance to look at the woman and just sent her a message with my eyes and that was the only thing I could do in that situation to like break up the situation but the point is as you said you could always do something you could always do something that is possible within the constraints of the socially constructed environment without putting yourself at risk of harm or of losing your job or of upsetting your family or whatever it is yeah yeah, I mean, even in that, right, you talked about ways to intervene uh, that are direct and indirect ways to intervene that um, are maybe shifting the person, right? Talking mm -hmm. about, hmm, that's interesting. What would you call the sort of interrupt that you did asking about the watermelon? That seems almost like a, a misdirect in a sense. I don't, I don't know. I would call that a distraction. Distraction. Because um, I... I, I interrupted the situation, whereas 
if someone made a negative comment about a group, or let's say someone made a negative comment about women professors, that, you know, too many women professors are getting tenure. And I would say, that's interesting. My two best professors last term were women. It has to be true. But if I say something positive, it contradicts the negative. Or I could just change the subject and say, oh, by the way, <laughs> I need to ride to the bank. <laughs> because when people are uncomfortable and you change the subject, it allows them to change the subject. Or I could say, could you tell me why you feel that way? I'd like to understand how you feel. And I could get into a conversation with the person. Because usually if, if you listen to someone, then they're later willing to listen to you. So the point is that there's a lot of things we can do. And there's, a, there's another point I want to make as, as therapists, which is very often people come to us with problems and they accept, um, they accept too much responsibility for what happened to them. And if we could help them see, well, who knew about this situation? Who knew that your father was alcoholic? Who knew that someone was abusing someone? Who knew about this? What else could they have done? Then we help the person see, there's a lot of people who let me down. And rather than blame myself, I'm angry and disappointed that the people who didn't act, who could have stopped or interrupted or shifted the situation that I was in, and then we can look at ourselves as bystanders and say, well, when are we in a situation where we can make a difference in someone's life and we're not doing it? Yeah. Yeah. Man. I think that this is really helpful. You know, I think um, in my own training, a lot of what they talked about was like sort of abstract. Like they would talk a lot about being a good person and doing your own work, which is important, obviously. Um, but it wasn't always clear on like what to do next. And for me, maybe I'm the only one who feels this way, but having some of these tools gives me the confidence of competence to go and intervene if something happens. Exactly. We need tools. And, you know, it's interesting because um, for various reasons that I won't go into, I've been doing a lot of research on the life of, of Christ and my wife and I both in the past year or two. So he had 14 years where nobody knows what happened to him, right? Yeah. <laughs> he disappeared. And it seems to me that whatever happened to him during those 14 years, he got a lot of tools, <laughs> to use your phrase. He got some training. He got schooled. He got schooled in certain abilities that he developed so that when he had, was ready to take on his task in life, he had the tools to execute the task. And when we're talking about something much smaller in our own lives, such as intervening in a prejudicial or unjust situation, we need to give people tools so that they feel they can do something. And when they do something, then they no longer have that cognitive dissonance of letting themselves down. Yeah. Man, that is beautiful. Okay, so we're um, we're bumping up to our time. Sure. And I did want to ask a few more questions before we run out of time. Um, what? So we've talked a lot about social norms and how they work and how they can be used to dispel myths, right? So that people can um, see what's really going on and so people can feel it 
uh, empowered to help other people. Um, what do you think is on the edges of the field? What's the, what do you think is on the 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 forefront of social change that we need to be paying? Well, in some sense, we've already talked about it, which is in the bystander field, there's a need to address this issue of intersectionality or complex identities, and there's a need to give people a range of skills that um, that allow them to feel they can do something in different situations. In terms of the norms perception, we need to have accurate information about what other people feel, which is either by talking to them or surveying them. And we need to have that about the group that we're part of. You know, I live in California, so if I was driving on the highway and I saw a sign that said most Californians, I wouldn't relate to that because um, California is so diverse. But if I went into my place of worship and I saw an ad in in the newsletter that said, 89% 89% of, of the members of this congregation um, do, donate, you know, donate to put to different charities or something that might impel me to, to make the donation that I was putting off. Yeah, I think that's such a, that's such a big difference in the precision of what we're doing, right? Because it's not just, so in my own research, I was looking at, um, the the perception of alcohol use on college campuses and you know the perception of alcohol use on college campus was basically not related at all to what a, a student would would do but the perception of uh like their fraternity or their sorority exactly their was, peer group yeah. and we also need to realize there may be campuses where alcohol use is underestimated, such as religious campuses where you're not supposed to drink. Then it might go in the opposite direction. Right. And actually, if I could jump in with something I want to share, just to also give voice to my Jewish heritage, is that in the Jewish tradition, we talk about tikkun olam, which means healing of the world, and that the, the divine world was a world of, of light, and it was broken into fragments. And our job is to gather the fragments back together. So this idea of um, reclamation or evangelizing is actually, I believe, in every religious tradition. And we can reach into the person's own background and find out how they think of it and where it sits for them and use the metaphors that will speak to them most deeply. We don't have to use our our understanding of of our spirituality to engage someone with, with their spirituality. Yeah. One of the, the things I'm enjoying from this conversation is how you have a very clear vision that what we're looking for is already in other people. Yes. Whether it's you know, Plato, Plato, <laughs> sorry to interrupt. Plato said that all knowledge is reminiscence, which means that the soul already has the knowledge within it. And it's a question of giving giving birth to it so in a sense as therapists we're midwives which is we're helping someone give birth to something that already is within themselves and you could think of that in a spiritual sense or in a more everyday sense yeah which brings us full circle (laughs) back to the there we go there we go
<laughs> and also the midwives are washing their hands and the mm -hmm. doctors weren't. Yeah. Oh man. Um, what are you, what are you reading now? What I'm reading now mostly are, and my wife and I together, books about the life of Christ Jesus, and partly as a person who grew up in the Jewish tradition to see how he lived a religiously Jewish life, and he was not planning to found another religion, and to kind of bridge the dichotomy that we live in between Christianity and Judaism and also Islam, um, and to see how underlying the the differences that I believe we over we overemphasize, there's many commonalities, and certainly for myself, I can see many um, Judaisms that became incorporated into Christianity that, in some way, could be seen as a continuity of Judaism, and that, in fact, for the first one or two hundred years after Christ's life, they weren't. It was not even a separate religion of Christianity. There were Christian Jews. So it's, it's very meaningful for me to understand that phase of human history and um, see how we got to where we are now, which in my opinion is not always a place that Christ would be happy with if he were among us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think in many ways, that's true. And I think that you're right. You know, I, I was, I was, I, I think I was lucky enough to be brought up in a church that had a deep respect for uh, Judaism. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you can't really deny the unescapable fact that like Jesus was Jewish. I think some, sometimes in evangelical circles, people think that Jesus was a Christian, which just isn't true. This is not true, right? And and it's not. We're not trying to negate Christianity. Right. We're trying to understand how things came about mm -hmm. and respect the influences and the origins on these these great beings that came to Earth to help us. Yeah. Um, who who else do you do you read? You're 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 reading a lot about Christ. Who else do you do you look into? Um, there are certain modern spiritual teachers who have a way of synthesizing what I would consider ancient wisdom and presenting it in a form that's consistent with modern scientific knowledge and modern thinking but not losing the essence and and one of those is named paul brunton who is an english writer and i actually had um the blessing of, of being involved with the nonprofit foundation that publishes his books and another one is from brazil named jose tigarinho and my wife and I are actually um, translating his books into English. And, and um, so part of my personal blessing is having contact with these people, contemporary people who I consider wise and who bridge the differences and the separations that we tend to create in our lives 
and help me see the bigger picture. So, you know, if this was another phone call, I could talk very fluidly about Hinduism or Islam or Judaism because I, I have great respect for all the traditions and see that they're underlying truths in all of them. And in this conversation, I have the liberty of articulating what we're talking about more in a Christian framework, not only because that's meaningful to me, but because obviously that's your audience. Those are your students. Yeah. Well, um, if students want to look more into your work, they want to learn more about you, how can they do that? So there's two sides of that question. There's alanberkowitz.com, which is my personal professional website. And um, my wife and I are developing a website called thepathofphilosophy.org. And it's very unfinished. But in that website, we're trying to offer this vision of a synthesis of different uh, wisdom traditions and a, a mutual respect between them and offer um, texts and um, writings that will amplify that. So even though that's very in the beginning, uh, at some point that will will be a place where the the spiritual beliefs that I'm sharing are more fully available. And someone can always contact me. I'm always happy to hear from folks. My email is alan at snowcrest.net. And that's also on my website. Yeah. Well, Alan, look, thank you so much for talking with me. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, you're doing a personal, uh, important work, trying to help us all um, help each other, which is almost more needed now more than ever because I think humans are becoming very powerful, but I don't know if we've grown with that power. <laughs> so we might be in and danger. <laughs> if we if we become more powerful and have more powerful tools and we don't grow with the power, then we are more dangerous. So, mm -hmm. And I would just say I'm very uh, grateful for you and what you're doing and the opportunity to have this conversation in which I really don't have to inhibit anything in terms of what I speak about and what I say, and I can be more fully myself. So I, I'm very delighted as well um, to have had this opportunity, and uh, and I could say you're welcome and thank you. Yeah. Well, if I can help you at any time in the future, let me know. Well, we could always have another conversation. <laughs> we should definitely do that. We should definitely do that. I'll, I'll see what see what your students think first. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Be well.